Welcome to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski of Condo Vultures. Today is Wednesday, so we are doing our Reporters Roundtable. It's a discussion by current and former journalists of some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week. We help you, the listener, understand, um, you know, why these stories are important and how they might be impacting local economy and or the real estate market. The thing we ask of all of our uh, panelists or, or Roundtable members is, straight talk and salty language, i.e. cursing, is permissible. So that being said, uh, let me go ahead and introduce you to our roundtable this week. We have a gentleman who tends to be technologically challenged at times, so it took us a little while to kind of get him up to speed today, but so far so good. Sounds like his microphone is working just fine. Who is that? That guy's name is John Fackler. John used to write about white-collar crime as well as publicly traded companies in South Florida. He's a South Florida business journal. Now he does public relations and consulting. What's going on, Mr. Fackler? How's your headphones? How's your how's your microphone? You tell me. How do I hear? Um, you sound okay? <laughs> Dude, did you get enough sleep? We just changed the clock. It sounds like no, you're a little no, bit no. off keel no, today. I, my, listen, my biggest complaint today, and excuse me if I'm not as sharp as normal, um, <laughs> I'm saying that facetiously, um, is that I can't take I can't take this this um, time thing, uh, daylight savings time. Um, I was already not getting sleep. For weeks. Yeah. Now okay. I got even less sleep. I didn't even know there was a change last night. So I'm going on like three hours sleep. So if I'm not sharp, that's my excuse. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, we're, we're definitely going to bring that up when we get to the prediction segment. Anybody who's listening to the podcast for the first time, let me remind you that in segment three, I ask all the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. Segment four, uh, we'll get into the comments phase of uh, the podcast. In segment one and two, we're going to talk about a total of six articles, uh, three in the first segment three in the second segment. So uh, who else we have? We have another one of our regulars. That is a gentleman who is a journalist for north of 25 years, wrote about uh, economics, finance, banking, a whole variety of different topics all throughout the state of Florida. He also did a gig up in New York, excuse me, in Washington, Washington. And right now he has his own populations and marketing firm called Groose Communication. That's John Groose. What's going on, John? Peter, it's great to be back. Great having you. You sound much more chipper. I'm assuming that... Uh, you slept much better than Mr. Fackler, who's sort of uh, dragging his knuckles today. <laughs> well, I went scuba diving this. I went scuba diving this weekend, so there we go. Nice. Where 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 did you dive? I, I went to Key Largo, and let me tell you, spring break is is um, full on. I mean, it it yeah. was super super crowded, and uh, traffic was uh, you know going into Florida City when you take the two lane road to go to Key Largo. Backed up yep. all the way to the interstate on Sunday afternoon. Incredible. Incredible. My God. Well, the state of Florida is open, so and, and Governor Ron DeSantis is telling everybody to come on down, and they're apparently coming, which is one of the things we're going to be talking about in one of our articles. So that's interesting insight. And who is our rotating journalist this week? Well, it is a woman who's been a journalist for seven years. She's a deputy web editor as well as a reporter over at The Real Deal Miami. She's somebody who's always breaking headlines, and the other members of the press seem to be following her more often than not lately. Who's that? Catherine Kalergis. What's going on, Catherine? Not much. How are you doing? Doing well, doing well. Uh, then, um, you know, I was putting together the stories this week. Uh, you know, we do six six articles. Two of them I had from you. And I said, you know, I don't want to set a precedent, so I limited it down to one. And I might ask you about one of the other ones. But, uh, wow, you're breaking some um, some big stories uh, uh, there. Uh, is it enjoyable, or are you just working feverishly and frantically to try to get all these um, <laughs> these headlines out? Um, it's currently enjoyable, but ask me in a couple of weeks. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And 
did you make the time adjustments uh, fairly easily, or did you struggle, and are your knuckles dragging on the ground like Mr. Patrick? <laughs> you know, it wasn't so bad. I don't. I hate losing an hour, um, and yep. I'm, I'm more of a night owl, but I do prefer that it's it's lighter now. That is true. That is true. Great point. Okay, um, why don't we go ahead and we'll get started. Uh, let, let's do like we've been doing uh, every week and every month, uh, basically since the beginning of the podcast. That's giving everybody an update of what's going on in the COVID numbers. Uh, all the statistics I'm going to refer to, they're coming from the Florida Department of Health COVID-19 dashboard. Anybody want to see the data, just type that in, Florida Department of Health COVID-19 dashboard, and you will get the numbers that the state is officially uh, coming out with. Uh, I'm not saying the numbers are accurate, but I am saying they are official. So here's what we got going. We're just under 2 million confirmed cases as we mark this one-year anniversary of COVID, 1.98 million confirmed cases with 748,150 in South Florida, which is comprised of Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach County. And that breaks down into 422,350 in Miami-Dade, 201-900 in Broward, and 123-900 in Palm Beach County. Overall, South Florida is going to represent 37.8% of all the cases. Now, on the death count, we're looking at 32,348 with 10,787 uh, coming out of South Florida. That breaks down with 5669 in Dade, 2549 in Broward, and 2569 in Palm Beach County. And then finally, hospitalizations. We've increasingly been looking at hospitalizations. People were talking about how the vaccine is really starting to get inoculate, uh, starting to inoculate a variety of different people. And you would think the hospital numbers would be going down, but actually what we're seeing, we started tracking hospitalizations uh, three weeks ago when we started at 79,000. Right now, uh, currently, we have 82,300. So we're actually seeing an uptick in hospitalizations. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but the numbers are going up. 27,450 hospitalizations in South Florida with 12,000 cases in Miami-Dade, 9,200 in Broward, and 6,200 in Palm Beach County. So maybe it's the rest of the other part of the state, but hospitalizations are going up when many people, I think, would think that they were going down. So Anybody want to comment about COVID? Anybody want to comment about spring break? Anybody want to comment about some the progress we're making uh, uh, related to the vaccines? Yeah, we'll check back in a week from now. We'll see if these uh, spring break, uh, uh, you know, makes these numbers go up. I've I got a bad feeling about it. So give it a week to 10 days, and I'll feel a lot better after that. Now, now, John, you're, you're, you, that, that opinion is coming from the fact that a lot of headlines are coming out of Miami Beach and Fort Lauderdale about people just descending on the streets. Streets are being closed because there's such large numbers of uh, spring breakers who are in town, nobody wearing masks, and a lot of arrests going on. Is that, is that what you're referring to, John? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's made the national news. It was, it's being played over and over again on CNN. Um, so we're definitely the uh, target uh, here. Uh, the talk, they're showing some uh, some spring break parties in Corpus Christi in Texas, but right now Miami Beach is making all the headlines. And, you know, they're showing these videos. It's just it's just sickening watching this. No social distancing. You know, people are just um, uh, no masks really whatsoever. It's shocking, really. Um, but, um, you know, we'll see. Like I said, if the numbers don't go don't go up, we, we skated. That's what I'll say. We just skated. Well, yeah, but the numbers don't go up here or numbers don't go up back in the home state where these visitors are coming from. Because if you remember a week or two ago, we, we, we talked about how, uh, you know, I think it was close to 50% of all the visitors based on the survey, they're actually coming from out of town. They, they weren't local. Yeah, that's true. No, that's a good point. Um, but, you know, like, again, a lot of people coming from the Northeast, a lot of people coming from the Midwest. Um, so you're right. I'm, we're going to see if, if those numbers, you know, 
spike in other parts of the country uh, as opposed to here. John, when we when we began the podcast, you said you went down to Key Largo. Anybody doesn't know it, it's the first island, effectively, when you go from the mainland into the Florida Keys. It's a great uh, place for diving, uh, all kind of dive places out there. you got some national parks, things like that. John, when you were driving down with the bumper-to-bumper traffic down US-1 uh, going into the Keys, uh, where were the license plates from? Were they all Florida license plates, or did you happen to notice, uh, you know, uh, a majority coming from one place or one region. Uh, any, any insight related to that? You know, I did not because, uh, you know, I, I go to the key super early in the morning to avoid the traffic. Uh, so uh, yep. the traffic I saw was when I was heading back to Miami uh, in the early afternoon, traffic was going the other way. Uh, but I saw a lot mm-hmm. of camper vans. I saw, you know, I I mean, I'm sure it's a lot of people who are within the driving driving range, so probably the southeast uh, because, yep. you know, the Caribbean, the Caribbean's closed, um, you know, uh, Latin America's closed, Europe's closed. So I think a lot of Americans are staying at home. And, um, you know, Florida, I, uh, I was talking to a friend recently who's trying to book a room in, in the Keys, um, in the Key Largo area for the, at the end of this month. And they couldn't find anything for less than $400 a night. So what? Yeah, that just shows the demand. Yeah, incredible. Incredible. But, 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 John, we have something down here that I refer to as Latin American economics, and that is as the number of bookings goes down, the, the hoteliers actually charge more. It's kind of like Penthouse Condo. The bigger the unit, the more price per square foot they charge, which goes against every economic principle that I've ever learned. But I would refer to it as Latin American economics because the first time I saw it was like in Panama or somewhere down in Bogota, Colombia. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> um, Catherine, anything you want to mention about COVID, uh, your experience, what you're seeing, uh, people around you, are you, you, you feeling it? Uh, everybody well, wearing masks or is it, are they all going sort of uh, no masks now? I think it depends on where you are. You know, when you drive through like any touristy area, I, I see way less masks. But um, the only thing I was going to mention, because you, you asked like where the cars are coming from, is I think the, the airport reported like its highest day of of travel um, since the pandemic. I think yesterday was like the busiest day they've had, the Miami International. So people are flying. Wow. I mean, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Because I don't, like, I wouldn't feel comfortable flying yet. You know what I mean? Even even when vaccinated. I don't know. I, I, I think that you need a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these people, like, I don't think that most of these people are vaccinated. Yeah. Catherine, any, 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 um, any thoughts uh, on the number of hospitalizations actually going up? 82,307 people are hospitalized as of the day we're recording this, which is March the 15th. If we go back to March the 1st, you had 79,400 people. So, you know, you, we, we added effectively 3,000 people in the hospital. And keep in mind, you've got to be pretty bad in order to be hospitalized. So 3,000 right. people in, in, in effectively, you know, three weeks. And that's statewide, right? Uh, that would be statewide, yeah. In in Tri-County, South Florida, we right now we have 27,450. Three weeks ago, we had um, 26,460. So we gained 1,000 people effectively yeah. since March 1st. So it's actually two weeks we've gained 1,000 people. That's 500 additional people uh, in the hospital net. Uh, per week. So that suggests that maybe this thing isn't under control as much as a lot of people like to think, at least to me. I wonder if, I wonder if people are just 
slowly loosening up and 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 that's part of it i don't know and you know they're maybe having like more small gatherings or i'm not sure yeah well i also read that uh there there are some more of there some um variants that are a lot more contagious like the uk variants and apparently okay. that's that's uh really boosting the numbers in florida wow 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 well i will tell you next week when we do this round table we're going to break uh we'll probably break two million people in the state of Florida with confirmed cases based on how the numbers are trending. Again, 1.98 million confirmed cases. So, okay guys, um, that being said, let's go ahead. We'll get into our first um, story. This first story is gonna come out of CNBC. And John, I want uh, I, I want you to comment on it first. So let me read the headline in the first couple points and then maybe you can um, uh, provide some insight. Uh, headline, the housing market stands at a tipping point after a stunningly successful year during the pandemic. Three points that are pointed out or highlighted by uh, CNBC. Point number one, one year after the COVID-19 crisis shut down and warped so much of American life, things are still unpredictable, but the outlook isn't bright for housing. Point number two, in fact, it looks like the perfect storm for a correction. Point number three, home prices are overheated. Mortgage rates are rising. The supply of homes for sale is anemic, and consumer confidence in the housing market is falling. What say you, Jean, Chicken Little, or maybe just a little blip uh, in a somewhat uh, otherwise very robust and rah-rah type of housing market? What, what say you, Jean? Well, well, I think the housing market has been completely distorted uh, by the pandemic and, and the Federal Reserve's all-time low interest rates. Um, and so, you know, the, the market that we have now is completely abnormal. Um, uh, and so what happens next, you know, is anyone's guess, but um, I think your guest, uh, Barry Dunn uh, from Fort Lauderdale, uh, recently uh, uh, indicated that, um, you know, he doesn't see uh, uh, inventories rising anytime soon uh, because people are just not putting their homes on the market. And, um, you know, that could drive values even further up. And, um uh, make it really hard for realtors to find listings. So, yeah, I, I I think this still has room to run, but, you know, who knows? Because the market is so messed up from all these all these uh, crazy things, the pandemic and and the Federal Reserve's ultra-low interest rates that's, um, you know, it's, it's going to be very hard to, to, to see it go on like this for many more years. <laughs> Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Catherine, I'm going to want you to come up. Let me read a couple of graphs out of the article. Um, it says, the outlook for housing in 2021 is mixed. Some sectors, like single-family rentals, they should thrive while, while the for-sale market is facing a bevy of headwinds. Affordability is number one on the list. Consumer confidence in the housing market fell in February, according to the most recently, uh, recent monthly sentiment survey from Fannie Mae. People think house prices will continue to go up. As a result, the share of consumers who say it's a good time to buy uh, homes dropped from 52% to 48%. Um, Catherine, is this a telltale sign of maybe what's coming down the pike, or are these maybe just some people who are frustrated that they can't afford to buy and or they're getting outbid for some of the homes they're pursuing? What, what say you? No, I mean, I think I think everything is, is overpriced. I think, I think pricing is, like, out of control because of no inventory. Um, like Jean said, like, there's no – the interest rates are, are so low. Um and with the rentals, it's, it's kind of interesting because that's something that's been building for a while, um, and it kind of feeds the market that is priced out, um, can't afford to buy a house, but there's billions of dollars being poured into single-family rentals. So I think it's just like further 
um, I guess distortion again of of the housing market. It's just going to get it's just going to continue. And keep in mind, there's a moratorium on foreclosures and on evictions. That moratorium right. is uh, I don't know what the latest is, but um, I get the sense it's going to probably run up until about uh, September or so when uh, the current federal stimulus program sort of comes to an end. So if we look at Q4, basically the moratorium potentially, and I'm speculating here of that being lifted, isn't that going to dump some new quantity of places potentially on the market, um, both from a renter perspective as well as a, uh, a resale perspective? What, what, what do you think, Kathleen? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm seeing online, like I'm seeing um, some deals being held up because – um, they can't get the tenants out, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's been happening for months. Um, yeah, that's a big problem. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what else I can add about that. But if you can't, yeah. if you can't, you know, if you can't, ev- if you can't move forward with an eviction or foreclosure, um, what do you have? What choice do you have? What do you do? You know, well, do you sue? I, tell- I mean, well, well, and to remind everybody, um, the Miami Herald reported um, uh, that you know, March through December, there were 50,000 eviction filings um, um, uh, initiated in the state of Florida where people haven't basically effectively been kicked out because there's a moratorium that's in place. So just imagine what that number is building to. But uh, I was going to say, uh, our real estate player profile that we're doing on Friday, it's with an investor out of California. This guy invests in uh, California, invests in Texas, he invests in uh, Arizona as well as Florida. And the issue he has is anything that he potentially would want to buy because people are in trouble in terms of owners, they got a moratorium so they don't need to sell. And then the other one is any rentals that he might buy, uh, the tenants aren't paying the rent. So he's like, why the hell am I going to take this on and then ultimately have to go and try to collect the rents? So, you know, this is kind of the push-pull. So I don't really think that this is a, a truly a true market. This is a this is an artificial market because of the moratorium. So that would be the case I would make. I don't know if anybody wants to push back before we go to the next story. I wonder if there would be any, um, like, any discount at some point, like, if sellers would be willing to give any discount um, to buyers taking on, you know, properties with tenants who aren't paying because they're betting on the fact that um, eventually the moratorium will be lifted, but they can't hold out that long. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, I'll, I'll ask him when I do the interview with him, and, and, and that podcast will appear on Friday. At least that's what it's scheduled to. So, uh, okay, story number two, Catherine, we're going to start off with you on this one, and I'm going to ask Mr. Fackler to, uh, to provide his two cents. This comes from Politico. Uh, headline, Zillow faces antitrust suit over change to real estate listings. Subhead, Zillow and its affiliate Trulia are illegally favoring listings by brokers who belong to the National Association of Realtor, a real estate startup, alleged. Now, let me tell everybody, if you are a licensed real estate professional, uh, in South Florida, you pay $1,000, you join a club. That club is called the Miami Association of Realtors or it's the Fort Lauderdale Realtor Association. For that $1,000, you get education, you get networking, you get lobbying, but also, too, you get access to this database that realtors use. Realtors put information into a database to market a property as well as to find properties for their potential customers, which could be tenants, they could be landlords, they could be sellers, they could be, uh, you know, you, you sort of name it. But keep in mind, this database is effectively what a lot of people use, but it doesn't represent the entire market. For instance, it will not represent uh, for sale by owner. 
that's not in there. So, so when we talk about the MLS, this is what we're referring to. So, so Catherine, let me, let me read the first couple graphs out of this. A real estate startup sued Zillow in federal court Tuesday over allegations that the popular real estate website violates antitrust law by deceptively staring customers to home listings from a subset of agents. In the suit filed in U.S. federal court in Seattle, Rex alleges Zillow and its affiliate Trulia are illegally favoring listings by brokers who belong to the National Association of Realtors, the most prominent U.S. real estate trade association. Home listings by non-National Association of Realtor agents are now relegated to a hidden tab on the website, the startup says in the lawsuit. Catherine, there's been a lot of talk down here about um, the MLS and can you trust it? And is it the entire market or is it just the market that, uh, you know, the people hawking the product wants you to see? Uh, now you got an, now you got a lawsuit going on. There was Zillow's actually throwing in with the realtors. What, uh, what say you? I think it's interesting because people expect, well, I mean, like in, in one of the stories I read, um, the lawyer for the uh, plaintiff, which is this brokerage, said that um, that Zillow is backtracking on on its you know on its mission to help the public and it is instead focusing on its own profits. But Zillow is I mean it's it's not it's I don't know how to put it. It's a company like they're they're trying to make money. So it's not shocking to me that this is happening. Um, but they have such a huge share of the market that it has a huge mm-hmm. huge implications for. Um, Agents, like you said, for sale by owner wouldn't be seen, like all that kind of stuff. So it's just, it's like more of that you have to pay to be seen, um, pay to play kind of mentality. Do you think it would be comparable to maybe um, uh, spending money on advertising uh, to get at the top of Google page one when you're doing a search result? You know how... Um, uh, some yeah. company might not necessarily qualify to be a, a number first page result, but if they pay enough, they can all go ahead and, and, and leapfrog and get into that, that key uh, position. I mean, that's what it kind of sounds like to me. I don't know. I, what, yeah, what do you think? I think, think you're I'm, right. I'm, I'm, yeah, I think you're right. I agree with that. Um, and oh. the other thing, too, is I don't know if, I, if, if everybody is aware or remembers, but Zillow has, like, the premier agent option where okay. you can – you're not the listing agent of a property, but you can pay – to be shown as a quote unquote premier agent. So that's okay. also like another element that makes it more confusing for consumers because they may see that and instead of clicking on the real listing agent, reach out to the agent that paid to be in that position. Um, so, interesting. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, John, uh, uh, let me get your comments or your thoughts on this. Let me, let me read a graph or two out of the story. Um, a change Zillow and Trulia made to their sites on January the 12th. Before then, the sites, uh, which control 75% of the online home search market, according to the company's security filings, allowed users to easily view all homes for sale, regardless of whether a listing was posted by an agent. But that all changed on January the 12th. Beginning this year, Zillow and Trulia started segregating listings, giving preferential treatment to the 1.3 million real estate agents who belong to the National Association of Realtors. Uh, Rex alleges, and Rex is the plaintiff. Other listings, including those posted by brokers not affiliated with the NAR, which is National Association of Realtors, foreclosures and home listed for sale by owners without agents are now relegated to a separate tab. John, um, do you think that sort of smells of maybe, you know, pumping the market up, juicing the market, where if you're, if you're somebody who's not necessarily as skilled or uh, has an understanding, you might go to Zillow and think that's the, uh, the be-all, end-all, and lo and behold, you're not seeing the entire market. You're only seeing sort of the things where they have an affiliation. 
is that uh, is that straight up, or should there be disclosures? What's uh, what, what, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that there should an adjustment should be made. There should be disclosures. Doesn't say um, one thing is if it's a hidden tab or if there's a tab that says you have one tab with uh, NAR agents, or you have another tab that says not NAR, or something like that. It should be more clear. But um, the way this story read to me was that um, Trulia um, slash Zillow uh, are looking to uh, wet their beak a little bit because apparently the NAR uh, agents uh, traditionally charge a higher commission um, and also on the sell side. So it could be as much as 6%. And I noticed that NAR pushed back in this article too. They didn't really hear you know, uh, what the reporter had to say. They didn't see a problem with what was going on. They, they said that this lawsuit was frivolous. Now, so why is NAR getting so involved emotionally with this? You know, it's it's like I think there's something in it for them and there's something in it for uh, Zillow. Well, I think what's what's in it is ultimately Zillow is uh, they're pulling together all of these um, listings and they're putting them in front of uh, the would-be consumer who's going out yeah. there who maybe doesn't go to Realtor.com. Instead, they're going mm-hmm. to Zillow and it's sort of cross cross-breeding, but again, it's not providing the entire market. You know, one of the things that uh, we were doing with Crane Spot is we were tracking all the new construction, what was going on, and then there was a competing firm here that would track new construction, but they would only publish the numbers related to the buildings that they thought were um, uh, worthy, and they didn't report everything. Why? Part of it is they don't want to do the research. The other part of it is it wasn't necessarily good because of pricing and other things. That's the argument I would make. So I would just tell anybody looking in the marketplace, uh, look at Zillow, look at Realtor.com, look anywhere and everywhere, but understand uh, that's not the entire market because there's always a for sale by owner and there's foreclosures and there's other things that are available for purchase, but you might not necessarily be seeing them so easily. So keep that in mind. Uh, story number three, uh, John, let's uh, stick with you for story number three. This is coming out of Reuters, comes out of Reuters headline. British Airways calls for vaccinated people to travel without restrictions. Uh, the lead British Airways new boss said vaccinated people should be able to uh, should be allowed to travel without restrictions on non-vaccinated people with a negative COVID-19 test as he sets out uh, ideas for a travel restart a month before the United Kingdom government finalizes its plans. John, what do you think? Should we have um, some sort of pass if you've been vaccinated, you can get on a plane and go wherever the hell you want? Or is that going to create some sort of separation or segregation between those who are smart and rich enough or lucky enough to get vaccinated and those where the vaccine is simply not available? What say you, Mr. Peckler? Well, that's an ironic, uh, that's a good question, because um, part of this article really pertained to the fact that Brits like to travel. Uh, they like to go on holiday. They don't go on holiday with the guess <laughs> within the country. They go to Spain. They go to all these local countries. So I think British Airways is looking to capitalize on this financially. Um, and obviously people who travel for holiday, uh, as they say in the UK, um, have more money than those uh, than others. So they would more likely get the vaccination than others, like you said. So uh, I just think it's way too soon to make a move like this, um, especially with lockdown uh, being really hardcore in the UK, uh, more so than the US. So I think this is strictly a marketing slash financial move on their part. Uh, John, uh, your comments, I'm wondering, you know, there, there is, we're, we have more and more people who are starting to get vaccinated. A lot of people want to sort of stretch their legs because they've been on lockdown for at least a year. Um, what do you think of the idea of some sort of pass or some sort of 
app uh, like they're using in Israel, where once you've been uh, inoculated, you basically can get access uh, to a whole variety of places, and those who haven't been act, um, uh, vaccinated can't go, almost as an incentive to get people who maybe are a little resistant to the vaccination to step up and actually get the jab, as the Brits call it. What, what do you, Sean? Yeah, and I, and I think in Europe, you know, there's a lot more uh, resistance to getting vaccinated. Um, I've, I've noticed that uh, a, lot, a lot of Europeans are very hesitant to get vaccinated. And, um, you know, the rollout in Europe uh, has been, um, you know, a, a lot slower than in the U.S. I, I don't know if it's bureaucracy or, or what, but I mean, uh, you know, Europe is looking at, I mean, Italy just put a another lockdown in, on and it doesn't look like their summer is going to, I think they, they may actually have a terrible summer again because they're just not getting the vaccine out uh, quickly enough. And uh, I don't know if you've read today, but um, uh, the, many of the countries in Europe have uh, halted vaccinations using the AstraZeneca vaccine uh, over concerns about blood clotting. And, uh, you know, that just adds more fuel to um, to the anti-vaxxers. And um, so British Airways is looking at this going like, this is terrible. We're, we're never going to get our planes in the air if we don't get people right. know, to get vaccinated. And Europe is going to be shut down all summer. I mean, this is like prime prime travel season. Europeans get like, you know, the French get like six or seven weeks paid vacation, you know, and uh, pretty much, pretty much all of, all, all of August, the entire country is shut down. You know, everybody's on vacation. So um, it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, touch and go this year. We, they may have another, they may have another ruined tourist season. So yeah, I, I, I can understand why they're like encouraging some kind of a pass, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great point. Great point. Um, let's let's go ahead. We'll take our first commercial break. And the other side of the break, we're going to talk about people who fled the northeast to Florida, and then they decided, you know what? I'm going back north. I don't like it down here in South Florida. That'll be one of the stories we talk about. We're going to talk about a developer who got taken down related to allegations of bribery, and also too, we're going to talk about a high flying condo in South Florida where there's a foreclosure going because the developer didn't sell as many as uh, everybody was led to believe. So stay tuned. We'll catch up with you on the other side of the break. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Back in 1995, I got my real estate license, but I didn't practice for a number of years simply because I was writing about real estate as a journalist. 2006, I broke out and I launched a company called Condo Vultures. The idea was to try to use information uh, data and know-how to try to get the best deals on behalf of buyers. So if you are a buyer and you're looking for a deal, you're looking to try to understand the condo market in the Tri-County, South Florida area, myself or my team are here to help you to get a hold of us. Please call us at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit our website, condovulturesrealty.com. If you're enjoying the Condo Vultures podcast and you want more information, but this information in the written word as well as charts, why not sign up for the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report? To do so, go to condovulturesrealty.com. Slightly below the main banner and logo, you will see a sign-up box. It's called the South Florida Distressed Market Intelligence Report. Sign up. Simply enter your email address, hit subscribe, and lo and behold, every week you'll be sent a newsletter giving you the latest updates on what's going on in the distressed market in South Florida. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. I'm your host, Peter Zalewski of Condo Vultures. We're having a discussion about some of the biggest headlines that have occurred within the last week or so. Um, 
Who do I have on the panel? Well, I have Jean Gruss. Jean was a journalist for north of 25 years, including a gig at the Tampa Tribune. Right now, he runs a public relations and marketing firm called Gruss Communication. I have John Fackler, who wrote about, wrote about white-collar crime and publicly traded companies based in South Florida for the South Florida Business Journal. Right now, he does marketing and consulting for his own firm. And then finally, I have the deputy web editor and reporter at The Real Deal in Miami, and her name is Catherine Calerja. She's been a journalist north of seven years. So, um, John, let's go to you on uh, the first story of this second segment. This is coming out of Bloomberg. Headline, Wall Street A-listers fled to Florida. Many now IA returned. Um, here's what we got, the first couple graphs. The Upper East Side cocktail at Saints Ambrosas is just the same in Manhattan. The Carpaccio at Cipriani's, as media as red as on Wall Street. Here's the private equity billionaire Stephen Schwarzman on his way to La Goulot. And I'm killing it, and I don't know how to pronounce it, John. You're the French maker. Uh, the clubby French bistro popular with uh, Park Avenue socialites. There is David Solomon, the Goldman Sachs Group's chief, a team of finance, uh, financiers in tow. The names and the money say New York, but the um, aquamarine pools, the swaying palms, and the sultry Atlantic breeze to say something else. Florida, the would-be Wall Street South. For months now, A-listers on the lesser lights. From the world of high finance, have been traveling in the Sunshine State while riding out COVID-19. Hopeful locals see evidence that the area's long, elusive dream of luring big finance for good might be coming true at last. Along Worth Avenue and Palm Beach, real estate agents count commissions from a pandemic-induced real estate boom. Private schools uh, fantasize about attracting dispensed sets. The reality is more nuanced, much more. Only a small percentage of Manhattanites moved permanently to Florida last year, and as Vaccinations stir fresh hope that the pandemic's end is near. Ambulant talk of South Florida drawing Wall Street in mass is already beginning to fizzle. What say you, John? Uh, is this smoke and mirrors uh, based on the, the weather outside in the pandemic, or do you think some of these people are going to stick around? Well, actually, it's very interesting because I, I met some guys, um, some uh, tech guys who recently moved down here uh, from New York City. I, I met them in Brickell, in the Brickell Avenue area. And a lot of them are on very short-term leases down here. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're very ambivalent about their move to uh, South Florida. Um, they really like it here, uh, but uh, they do miss New York, and uh, they, they are thinking about going back. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is that we've actually enticed a whole lot of people down here and a lot of people have like tested the waters and they see it's possible. It's possible to have your company down here and it's possible to do deals down here. So I, th I think there's still some ambivalence about it, but I, th I think we've like uh, uh, made a pretty good sell uh, to, to the New York crowd that, you know, they might want to set up their residency down here. Maybe they'll spend, you know, uh, six months and a day in South Florida uh, to be Florida residents and maybe go back to New York in the summer times. But uh, I, I think we've made a pretty good case for, for New Yorkers to be down here. Mr. Fackler, you are a New Yorker born on Long Island. You worked at a boiler room in Long Island. Um, uh, you've been down here in South Florida since the 1980s. You can probably give some great perspective. Let me read two graphs out of the story, Mr. Fackler, and then I'll ask you a comment. And this is a quote coming from Jason Mudrick, who oversees $3 billion at Mudrick Capital Management, and he's resided in Manhattan for more than two decades. Here's his quote, John. The main problem with moving to Florida is that you have to live in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> New York has the smartest, most driven people, the best culture, 
the best restaurants, the best theaters. Anyone moving to Florida to save a little money loses out on all of that. What say you, Mr. Fackler? You came down here in the 80s, you went back home, and then you ultimately settled here for good. Um, is this Jason uh, Mudrick? Is he, is he off or is he right? It's, it's almost reminiscent of what happened to me. I came down, uh, loved it, but, you know, I, I missed New York, so I went back. And then when, when I came back, I stayed for good. And I think it, it gets into your blood the longer you stay here. Uh, but we've been reporting in this podcast uh, for weeks now about different firms, you know, moving, making the move down here. I'm just curious what made – is this story an outlier? Is, it, is there any facts that show that this is – actually happening that people that firms and people are coming here and then leaving maybe you can fill me in a little bit more here just, we go just think, all right yeah all right according to the article u.s postal service data paints a different picture last year 2246 people filed a permanent address change from manhattan to miami-dade county and 1741 went to palm beach county together they account for nine percent of the out-of-state moves from the borough up from six percent in 2019 still even a small number of departures by the ultra wealthy can have an outsized impact Top 1% right. of New Yorkers earned a combined $133.3 billion in 2018 and accounts for 42.5% of local income tax collected, according to the uh, City of New York's Independent Budget Office. So the number yeah. has gone up in terms of uh, permanent relocations, uh, yeah. and then the rest is going to be anecdotal. But that's that's an important point you just pointed out. Um, you know, it, it's a, it, it doesn't really matter. It's not really so much quality, but quantity. Uh, excuse me, not quantity, but quality. If this is a more upper scale, upper scale um, population moving here, whether it's firms or you know high net um, individuals, that sort of skews it a little bit. Because so far, what we're seeing is you know a lot of brokerage houses, um, so, so you know more professional firms moving here from New York. So I think that's you got to take that into account. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Uh, w one final quote. Let me just put it in for Mr. Mudrick. Uh, I like his quote. <laughs> he, he says, it'll be like the roaring 20s. You'll see a resurgence here like never before, said Mudrick, who predicts some of his friends who moved to Miami will soon be back in New York. You want to be buying New York and selling Florida. That's the contrarian in me. So this guy effectively says you should short Florida. Keep that in mind with <laughs> the high uh, housing prices. <laughs> I love no, no, I love no, so story number five, let's go to you, John. Um, this comes out of the real deal, but Catherine didn't actually write it. She didn't write it. And here's the headline. Bruce and Sean Chate arrested on charges of extorting 13th floor investments. Bruce Chate's bond was set at $10.5 million. And, Mr. Packer, you lived up in Broward County, and I want to get you some of your, your take on this um, uh, in Tamarack. You live close to Tamarack, I think, if memory serves me correct. So here, here's what the real deal says. They say the father and son real estate duo, Bruce and Sean uh, Chate, they were arrested on charges. They tried to extort millions of dollars from Arnold Carcenti um, of 13th Floor Investments in connection with the Tamarack Housing Communities, the firm developed on golf courses once owned by the Chase. Florida Department of Law Enforcement arrested the Chase on Tuesday, along with two co-conspirators, alleging they filed lawsuits, falsely claiming arsenic contamination in the residential communities, threatened to send letters to the Homeowners Association with the same false claims, and met with Carcenti numerous times, all in a push to extort funds from him to keep his mouth shut. Mr. Fackler, does corruption exist in Broward County and developers would be involved with it? I'm shocked. What say you? <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly. I like to say Miami Hustle, but let's call it a South Florida Hustle. Um, yeah, that uh, doesn't surprise me. It's not exactly 
Tamarack is not exactly an upscale neighborhood. I could see some sort of, you know, wheeling dealing going on in that area of Broward. I'm not sure if that's where the, the residence was exactly in Tamarack, but um, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm not t totally shocked, especially the premise of the fraud, which was, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, didn't several years ago, perhaps the last cycle, wasn't there a big deal made about the grounds, particularly in Miami when they're doing new construction, where they found arsenic and other um, compounds in soil? And it sort of oh, you're talking about stopped. the parks. You're talking about a lot yeah, of the yeah, yeah. parks. Yeah, where, where they had well, found so it. Yeah, and then the places. Um, uh, but John, let, let, let me read a quote from 13 Floor Investments. And they were the ones who were trying to go forward with a development, and 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 allegedly uh, this father and son uh, development team. They were shaking them down, allegedly. So, so here's, here's the statement from 13th Floor Homes. It says, the leadership of 13th Floor Homes was recently targeted by what is believed to be an illegal attempt aimed at derailing our firm's development plans in Broward County and undermining our company's reputation. We expect that the perpetrators will be held accountable. 13th Floor has spent the past 15 years cultivating a successful track record of development in South Florida, and we will fervently challenge any attempt to tarnish our credibility. So, so Mr. Fackler, there's this, this, this push for new development and things like that, and um, these people, it's almost like, like trolling, I would say, trying to put yep. them in a difficult situation, pay up or else, uh, you know, we're going to put out some information, and we are in right. an era of fake news. Right, right. That's a good point. I mean, this sounds totally, you know, um, uh, people would, actually, I can see people actually fall into this, uh, this story, but um, uh, you just dig a little deeper, and there's got to be some sort of, chemicals that were found or some sort of record, uh, you know, uh, how, how are you able to blackmail somebody unless you've got some sort of proof? Um, yep. So instead, if you don't have the proof, you put out some uh, disinformation, um, and that is enough because people don't want, you know, they'll, they'll be associated with a terrible story like that, and they're more willing to get extorted and pay off. Um, I, I could see that being the move, you know, capitalizing on the disinformation and getting the um, uh, the subject to pay off, so I could see them doing that. This in this case, obviously, these people stood their ground. Um, yeah, smart enough to know, you know, unless they've got proof that this not it's not going anywhere. So they're gonna probably fight it and fight it in the press as well as in court. Yep, yep, yep. Captain, I want to get you to comment. Let, let, let me just uh, let me read a graph that comes out of the article again. You didn't write this. It says in a meeting this month, Sean Chate called his father a bulldog, in quotes, and said the only way they would stop him is if Carsenti paid $3.4 million, according to the affidavit. Carsenti refused yeah. that Chates would file a class action lawsuit with a goal of negatively impacting Carsenti's Woodlands project. In a subsequent meeting, Bruce Chates demanded 250 grand in a day. And this, by the way, isn't the first legal trouble for the Chates. In the late 2000s, they were accused of bribing Broward County officials. So, you know, Kevin, I'm almost wondering, this sounds like the Miami-Dade developers going up to Broward County and not necessarily getting the welcome mat to come play in, uh, in Broward County. <laughs> what, what say you? Well, the part of the story talks about how the developer, 13th Floor, had purchased the note um, that the, for the property, which the Chates had lost. So I think it's like part of it is um, – Ah, great point. There's, there's, you know, there's a vendetta. Like they, they wanted to get – um, they wanted to get something out of it, out of them, you know. Um, but I just think the story is just classic. Like you said, classic South Florida. It's got extortion. It's, there's a golf course at the center of it. There's alleged um, toxic, you know, chemicals. Um, 
I just think it has it all, you know. Also, the Chates were accused, I think at the end of the story, it's that they uh, allegedly bribed Broward County officials in the late 2000s. So I think, <laughs> correct, correct, correct. I think the moral of this whole podcast is do your research. <laughs> ding, 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 you ding. Know? <laughs> yeah, do your research. Great point. And Catherine, that's a great segment for story number six, which you actually wrote. This appeared in The Real Deal last week. And let me read you the headline. Rubin Brothers seek to foreclose on Zaha Hadid's designed 1,000 museum. The lender is looking to take over 15 unsold units, alleging it's owed $83 million. Catherine, um, I don't want you to comment. I want you to just provide any kind of insight you can. I thought the Zaha Hadid 1000 Museum project was selling off like crazy. There were ultra luxury condos that were moving constantly here. There's not enough units because all these New Yorkers are coming here and they're buying it. They're overpaying. They're running out of units. How the hell does the last 15 units in this project, how does it go into foreclosure if a developer can't sell them in a market like this? They must be doing something wrong. What's, uh, what, 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 what can you tell us about the overall story? I want to ask you to comment. I'll ask Jean to chime in. So what to you, Catherine? I think that um, this, like, uh, this, this whole talk about the um, pandemic bringing down all these people to Florida, now they're buying condos. I think for some developers, it's a little too late. Um, like I know, I mean, I don't want to get, I guess not get too specific because I'm so familiar with it, but I know with 1000 museum, like they had been seeking a huge condo inventory loan in 2019, which is almost, almost two years ago. So I think that, I think that, I mean, they definitely had some sales because you can see it in property records, but it was probably, uh, probably not enough quick enough to satisfy the lender. Catherine, quick question. Um, 15 units, according to your article, are what uh, is unsold. How many units are in the building in, in its entirety? Isn't it only like 84 it's, units? Yeah, it's 84 units. Yeah. Okay. And the building was being, and I'm not asking you to comment, but I'm just telling the audience, the building was for sale back in what, 2014? They broke ground, yeah. December 2014, they broke ground. Yeah, so before then. So it's not like people weren't aware of this. You got David Beckham buying a unit here, and there was a lot of hoopla associated with that. People, and you know, there was actually a piece that ran on PBS about about the yeah. about the construction of it because it was so unique. So it's not like people weren't aware of it, right? But I mean, you know, downtown better than most. This this I think was pushing pricing to a new a new level in downtown Miami, right? I mean, I think I think this project is is one of the more expensive ones. I could be wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so it's um, kind of like uh, a Jean, test in a way. Yeah, Jean, um, when the when the project was going up, I was telling people this project is much more suited on the Barrier Island because it's low density. Uh, typically, the buildings on the mainland, like the Great Downtown Miami, they tend to have three, four, five hundred units. The places on the Barrier Island, they tend to be lower density. And again, this one has about eighty-four units or so. When in reality, they probably could have had three to four hundred. Uh, units. So because they have fewer units, they're able to, uh, in theory, try to drive a bigger price because there's less of it, you know, the traditional supply and demand. But in this case, they still have 15 unsold units, you know, six, seven, eight years later. Um, what say you? Is, is the product just not right for the location? Should have been on the beach? Or uh, is the pricing uh, out of sync? Um, what, what, what say you, Mr. Gross? Yeah, you know, I think that area is a little bit, um, a little bit too rough uh, for that kind of pricing. Um, so I go, I go jogging down there sometimes, 
uh, early in the morning. And I mean, it's across from the park and there's like, you know, dozens of homeless people, uh, you know, lying around camping there. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of isolated and, and it's, it's, it looks kind of seedy around there. There's, there are no, I mean, there are a few restaurants, uh, maybe a drugstore, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not very appealing. Um, and the, now you got the construction on the interstates and I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, that whole area is a little bit, um, a little bit, um, I, it, it doesn't justify the kind of, um, you know, uh, upscale, super, super ultra luxurious, um, project that you know maybe it's just ahead of its time um and certainly the building is impressive it looks impressive it's got you know all the bells and whistles but that specific location um you know maybe maybe that whole area needs to mature a little bit more um and you know a little bit it's a little bit ahead of its time i think yeah no that's a that's a great point i would just throw out there a lot of times when um, developers go and they have projects designed, there's two ways to design a building. You can design from the inside out where you take into anticipation everything that a user needs and you sort of let the exterior suffer. Or you can design it from the outside in where you focus on the, on the person on the street and therefore the interior isn't maybe as effective and efficient as uh, uh, the user would, would want. Now, I'm not saying that's the case in this particular building, but generally speaking, when you get into something that's architecturally significant, sometimes it has some drawbacks uh, on the interior that, uh, you know, people just aren't familiar with, they're not comfortable with. Um, uh, it's not to say that this building does or doesn't, but sometimes when I see a project that struggles with sales, uh, you know, there could be issues. And, 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 again, I'm not pointing to this tower as it being that, but let me point to one tower where it did occur. That, that tower was the Four Seasons on Brickell Avenue. Uh, right after September 11th, uh, they had to close down the sales center there because nobody wanted to live in a 72-story tower after the World Trade Center towers had come down. So, so for the longest time, they'd had to deal with all types of issues as well as balcony concerns that some locals had sort of put out there. So eventually the market caught up and it, and it, and it, and it and adjusted to what that tower is. But so sometimes there's that, that, that uh, acclimation that has to occur to the actual product type when everybody's you know accustomed to something that might be a little bit more uh, cookie cutter, if you will. So um, that being said, let's go ahead and we'll take a commercial break. On the other side of the break, I'm gonna ask the panel, let's go ahead and make a prediction. This is Peter Zaluski of the Condo Vultures podcast. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. And I wanted to alert you that if you have a property that you're looking to sell in the Tri-County South Florida area, I would encourage you to reach out to Jenny Hortus, a licensed real estate broker with CVRRealty.com. She's my partner. She's been in the business for uh, north of 15 years. More importantly, she knows the market. She knows how to get a deal done. And she also realizes that it's more important to get a price that you can accept and sell the property rather than to hold firm on some price that's never going to be achieved and ultimately languish on the market. So if you're looking to do a deal that you want a skilled expert who can help you sell a property, reach out to Jenny Hortis at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or visit her website, cvrrealty.com. If you're listening to this podcast, think about who else is. Do you want to reach that crowd, which tends to be investors, buyers, developers, lenders, why not advertise on the Condo Vultures podcast? To do so, give us a call at the office, 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859, or send an email, 
to inquiry at condovultures.com. I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y at condovultures.com. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. This is the segment where I ask the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. Mr. Fackler, it looks like the governor of New York might be in some trouble, and you had predicted um, one of the few times, actually, that you might seem to be right. You had predicted <laughs> that he might be on the way out, um, and everything is sort of pointing that way. So uh, on that positive note, why don't you give us another prediction uh, that's going to sort of uh, uh, bear fruit? So what say you, Mr. Fackler? Okay, I'll give you a nice short-term one here, which we seem to touch on earlier. We talked about the... <clears throat> A ridiculous amount of uh, people descending on Miami Beach for spring break and whether or not um, this could be a super spreader event because these are people from other parts of the country uh, so they may bring it back to um, you know they may bring it back to wherever they're from I argue that the, there will be an uptick I won't call it a plateau but an uptick in cases uh, as a result of spring break down here because a lot of these people are traveling from all parts of the country. We don't, nobody knows if they've been tested. They're walking around without masks. There, there's no social distancing. So I predict that there will be within seven to ten days from now um, a pretty sizable uptick in the number of cases. Um, I won't go as far as hospitalizations, but in the number of cases here in Miami-Dade. Um, what happens after that, if it's just a short-term peak, uh, that remains to be seen, but I do believe that there's going to be an uptick in cases. So what you're saying, Mr. Fackler, and, and keep in mind, uh, last week you predicted that Ron DeSantis four years from now would be the Republican nominee. So this time you're saying you're keeping a little bit closer. This time you're saying yes. by April the 1st, there will be an increase in the number of confirmed COVID cases in Miami-Dade County. That's out yes. of whack with what the, what the norm has been. Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes, I do. That's exactly it. April, yes. April 1st. Thank you for keeping it to a fortnight instead of four years. So that's much appreciated. Uh, John, what's it, what's it you? Uh, well, um, I predict that we are going to have a, a boom in new hotel construction, and it's going to lead Whoa. to an, an overbuilding of additional hotel rooms. Listen, I, I've been reading lately, um, like in the, and I'm talking about the Miami, Miami market specifically, but, um, you know, the list of new hotels that are coming online is really su very surprising given what we've just been through. I mean, I was reading, for example, that uh, travel booking firm Kayak plans to open its first hotel in Miami Beach. Uh, Treehouse is going to open a hotel in Brickell. Um, Miami International Airport is going to have its first new hotel in like 60 years. Um, the city approved uh, a 300-room hotel on Jungle Island near the cruise ship terminals. I mean, I, I keep reading about all these new hotels that are going to come online, and I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that, like, there might be some overbuilding going on, and we might have a, sort of a glut of hotel rooms Um and I, I hope we can fill them all, but um, that's a lot of hotel rooms that are going to be coming online. And um, uh, I, I think maybe the industry might be uh, a little bit ahead of itself. Interesting. Okay. That's a very interesting uh, prediction. Um, Catherine, what, what, what say you? Uh, you know, you talk to a lot of people. You're producing a hell of a lot of copy. Uh, you're breaking a lot of uh, uh, headlines. 
Um, what, what are you thinking? What's uh, what's coming down the pipe? Hmm. Um, I think you're going to see more, like we kind of touched on it earlier, but I think you're going to see more businesses requiring um, like proof of, of vaccination. I think like, like events maybe, like, you know, the, the South Beach Wine and Food Festival is, is, um, is doing that, I think. And I think like for more big events, you, you may start seeing that. Okay. All right. So yeah, some sort of pass to get in. Are you saying like, it's like, like Israel's doing where you download an app and yeah, you come like in and there's like a QR code? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Okay. Okay. My prediction, um, this is a prediction I made probably about six months ago after I did an interview with uh, an architect called Kobe Karp. Um, uh, so I'm going to make a prediction again. Let me first read you a little bit from an article that came out this week, um, and it's from NPR. Facing housing crunch, California cities rethink single-family neighborhoods. And effectively what the story is about is how this lack of housing is forcing planning and zoning boards to go ahead and rethink the way they do things. And what does that mean? That means instead of keeping neighborhoods that are all single-family houses, why not make them duplexes, triplexes, mix in higher density with lower density, and therefore land constraints are overnight disappear. They disappear because you can put more people in the same type of real estate, and you don't need to build a different infrastructure. So that's what the story is talking about. It's talking about how uh, the idea is spreading throughout the country, um, where this concept is being kicked around as a way to deal with the uh, lack of affordable housing. So what is my prediction? My prediction is as a result of COVID and as a result of uh, our new lifestyle for the last year that we've all been forced to endure, people have come to grips with the fact that, uh, you know, maybe we can make some adjustments and not have to reclaim more Everglades and kick out the alligators in the Rosiette Spoonbills, but more so repurpose some of the land that's in and around um, our area and it makes me think a lot of, like, Edgewater. Anybody knows the Edgewater area of Greater Delta Miami, which is going to be just north of the Adrian Arts Center? They used to be all single-family houses. And then what happened, some zoning changes went through with Miami 21, and suddenly all these single-family houses and duplexes were, were uh, assembled together, and they were replaced by 30- and 40- and 50-story towers. So that's what I see coming down the pike. I see some changing in planning and zoning that's going to deal with affordable housing by simply changing the use from some of these neighborhoods, which used to be – primarily single family to suddenly something a little bit higher density. So that's um, that's my point. Let's go ahead. We'll take a commercial break. The other side of the break, we're going to get into the comments. This is Peter Zalewski of the Condo Vultures podcast. Before I started doing these podcasts, I basically was in the business of being a licensed real estate broker, a contributing um, columnist for the Miami Herald, as well as the Miami Real Deal, but also expert witness work in consulting. So if you are looking for an expert witness or if you're looking for consulting services, a straight talk perspective as to what's going on in a particular marketplace, a building, or what happened previously for whatever your situation is, whether you are a, an attorney, whether you are an institutional fund looking to invest, or whether you're a lender who's trying to come up with some sort of a strategy and approach uh, for your lending committee going forward, I just might be able to help you to get a hold of me. Please uh, reach out to Peter at condovultures.com. That's Peter at condovultures.com. Or give me a call to the office at 305-865-5859, 305-865-5859. Welcome back to the Reporters Roundtable. 
We discussed six, about uh, six stories that would uh, occur in the last week that could have an impact on the local economy as well as the real estate market. We also asked all the, uh, the panelists to go ahead and make a prediction. Now, this is the comment section. This is when you, the listener, get to uh, sound off. You ask a question, make a comment, complain, compliment, any and all of the above. If you want to send a comment, send a, uh, an email to inquire at condovultures.com, I-N-Q-U-I-R-Y, at condovultures.com. Mr. Fackler, we don't have any comments this week. No, no, it's surprising, but um, um, I didn't get to all of Ilya's comments from last last week. Do you want to touch on um, particularly the uh, your your one on one interview? I think you made a comment about about that. Perhaps you can, you know. Um, no, share no, that no, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. I don't. I don't think it's necessary. Why don't we just um, uh, Why don't we just ask everybody if they have any final thoughts, and then after that, uh, we'll go ahead and shut down the podcast. So, so Catherine, any any parting thoughts you might have uh, just about the the week that that's been, or maybe what's coming down the pike as we are near the peak of the winter uh, tourism season and summer very quickly is going to be upon us because we just you know we we just leap forward with, with the clock. So, what, what what are you thinking, Catherine, as we sit here in the middle of March? Oh yeah, I'm good. No thoughts. Okay, <laughs> John, do you have any do you, do you have any final thoughts? Yes, I do. I, I, you know, uh, based on what's going on here at spring break, I, I think, um, I think Americans are ready to vacation and they are going to be coming down to Florida because I think the Caribbean is still going to be closed. Uh, this summer Europe is for sure going to be closed, um, because they can't seem to get their act together. And, um, Latin America, I mean, I don't think anybody's going to be traveling to Latin America anytime soon. Uh, they're having they're having even worse problems with COVID. Um, so, but Americans are ready to vacation, and I think Florida is going to be right there at the top of their list. And I think this is just great news for the hospitality industry, um, which really needs it. You know, we need to put those heads in beds, and um, I think I think we're going to be huge beneficiaries of the vaccination uh, the vaccination programs. Great point. Great point. Uh, Mr. Fackler, uh, Jean's talking about heads in beds. You were bitching that you only got three hours sleep because of the change in, uh, in, in time. Uh, we, we sprung forward. Do you have any parting thoughts, uh, uh, assuming you're, you're up, uh, that you might want to offer before we should go ahead and shut down this podcast? Yeah, I'd like to offer a suggestion to get rid of this uh, uh, daylight savings time once and for all. It was a, it's an <laughs> It's an archaic uh, regulation that was brought in uh, during World War II so people could continue to work in the factories under light. Um, since we don't have that issue anymore, I don't know why they haven't dropped this whole thing, and I'm hoping that in the future they will. Interesting. So you heard it here first. Change the daylight savings time and change the zoning, and all of a sudden all our problems will be solved. That was Catherine Kalergis. She's a deputy web editor as well as a reporter over at the Real Deal Miami you haven't checked out the real deal or you haven't checked her out in terms of her uh, byline, pay attention to her. She's breaking news uh, ahead of the curve on a lot of stories. That was John Bruce. John was a reporter for North for 25 years, primarily down here in the state of Florida, but now he has his own public relations marketing firm called Bruce Communications. And that was the sleepy John Fackler who's not getting enough <laughs> sleep. What he does with his time, I don't know. But he used to write about uh, white collar crime and publicly traded companies based here in South Florida for the South Florida Business Journal. Now he does public relations and consulting. And I'm Peter Zalewski. I want to remind you, if you're not yet a subscriber, please go ahead and do so wherever you listen to your podcast. 
And if you like what we're doing, leave us a comment and a rating. The more comments and ratings we get, the more likely we are to spread our message and help us accomplish our goal, which is try to bring straight talk to an overhyped real estate market. And then finally, send us a comment. We want to hear from you. Send an email to inquiry@condovultures.com. I n q u i r y at condovultures.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay strong, get inoculated, and who knows? Very soon, we're all going to be traveling hopefully out of Florida to different places because Lord knows we got enough visitors. Take care of yourself. We'll talk soon. Ciao, ciao.